Welcome to the podcast, Cleary Independent, coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. I'm Phil Cleary, writer, broadcaster, former footballer and independent member of the Australian Parliament. And I'm talking one-on-one with a man who came from the same football club, Coburg Amateurs, a little working-class club under the shadows of Pentridge Prison alongside the East Coburg Housing Commission. He played in three premierships with Carlton, 1968, 1970 and 1972 and he coached Carlton to the 1987 premiership. He is, of course, Robert Walls. Robert, how are you? I'm good, Phil, and uh, lovely to talk to you, and I guess we'll talk a bit about the old days back in Coburg and Brunswick, where we grew up and went to school and played our footy. Well, I'm going to go to Coburg, and we're going to traverse that patch, but before we get there, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Did you grow up in Denali, or were you born in Denali? No, I was born in Melbourne, but my father came from Denali, and my mother from Maryborough, which is only you know, 15 minutes away, so it's in central Victoria. But as a kid, I spent a lot of time up there with, uh, with cousins. And uh, actually, I, I went to school in Denali. I think it was grade four. My father had had a heart attack, and he was told to take time off, and, uh, and we went and lived at my grandmother's place. And your mother, Phyllis Ann Haberley, how does she pronounce that German name, her maiden name? Yeah, Haberley, Haberley. Um, yeah, it is, it is German. And her father, my grandfather, he was Gustav. And uh, he worked uh, in the railways. I think I was only about 12 or 13 when he passed away. So I do remember him. I find it fascinating to look at where people come from. And so if you go and search your background, people say, oh, born in Denali. Not true, but close because your father and mother came from the countryside. That's right. Uh, But we have a link with Denali. I'm not sure if you're aware, but the biggest gold nugget ever found was the Welcome Stranger. Mm. Now, the Welcome Stranger was found just out of Denali at a place called Maligal. And the, the two fellows who found the nugget, they brought it in to Denali and uh, they wanted to put it in the, in the bank vault and it was too big. So they went down to the, uh, to the local blacksmith and they broke this nugget up on the anvil. Now, the blacksmith, his name was Archibald Walls, my great-great-grandfather. Seriously? And that anvil that the welcome stranger was broken up on is in the main street of Denali today. On, on a, it's a monument there. I've been out to those sites. I've been out there and looked at where that nugget was found years and years ago. And amazing that you and I could be talking about that and you have this distinctive history. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> the uh, you know, great-great-grandfather, he was the local blacksmith. Uh, they, it was about only a couple of years ago, Phil, it was the 150 years yeah. since it was yeah. found yeah. and I was invited back there and basically we went bush and people yeah. dressed as in the day yeah. and uh, it was a fantastic occasion to be part of it all. So you ended up in Brunswick. Am I right in thinking that your mother was living in Donald Street? 
We lived in Donald Street and Lincoln Street, yes. which were only you know hundred meters away from each other. Yeah, and you were living in nineteen sixty seven in Donald Street uh, in a brick veneer house alongside the Merry Creek. Correct. Yes, and uh, we were the last house in the street, and if you went thirty meters from our house, you had the Merry Creek. On the other side of the Merry Creek was the Northcote Nine Hole Golf Course which is where I learnt to play golf as a kid. And, and as you would know, mm-hmm. kids growing up in Coburg and Brunswick, no one played golf, but, <laughs> but I did because I lived next door to the course and that's where I got my pocket money. Uh, I'd find golf balls down by the creek because the creek ran parallel with the second fairway and many, many a night I'd go over there as a kid and uh, I'd come home with 20 or 30 balls and I'd clean them up and when I got about 500 balls, I'd get on the tram and I'd go into the Melbourne Sports Depot in the city and sell the golf balls and come home with, with five quid in my pocket, which was a lot of money for a kid. Well, that was the old life of working class kids in the northern suburbs. We grew up with that. But I want to ask you this also. Your father, I'm right again, I'm thinking that he died in 1967. Yeah, yeah, he was only... Uh, 55. 55. As I mentioned, my father had had a heart attack um, earlier earlier than that, maybe five or six years. Um, and then he had, he, he had another heart attack and unfortunately he passed away. I'd, I was only 16. Mm. I had played my first three games of league football uh, for Carlton. Now, he never saw me play, but he knew I played, and I'm very grateful for that. Tell me why he never saw you play. It was 1967 that he died. You played, you played three games. What, he wasn't at the game or he was sick? He was in hospital. Yeah, he was in hospital at that time, and uh, he, he couldn't get to the game. And after those first three games, I got dropped back to the reserves, and uh, I think he might have seen me play a handful of reserve-grade games, and, and then he passed away. He passed away while driving his car and and fortunately you know nobody else got got hurt but he had the heart attack while driving ran off the road crashed into a fence and and that was it i was at training and i'll never forget it because you know your dad's passed away but i was at training and uh, after training our coach was ron barassi the great ron Mm. barassi and he had been told what had happened and he he called me into a room and uh, told me that my dad had passed away. So, yeah. And look, as the years went by, I really missed my dad because my teammates... Their dads had come and watched them play and, and they'd come from everywhere. Like I can remember David Mackay's dad was a spud farmer up at Newland and he'd come down in his big overcoat and after the game he's, he was number 43, I was number 42 and his dad would be there and he was so proud of David as he should have been and I, I used to think I, I wish my dad was here too because we had a lot of success. It's, there's an interesting coincidence there too. You coached Carlton in the 86 grand final, which you lost to Hawthorne, and Gary Ayres was the Norm Smith medalist. Gary Ayres' father died also when Gary was a teenager, and he died on his tractor on a farm, and he was a policeman as well. And, mm. and I often, 
in times when I've interviewed um, Gary Ayres at different events, we've talked about the impact of losing his dad and it was quite significant. So for you, Robert, that must have been a big event in your life. You, you become suddenly emerging as a le well, legendary status in the locality of Coburg, at least, in, in 1967, and then your dad is gone. Well, I, I can remember when my dad passed. Funny the things that come back to you. They had the funeral, and uh, it's what they called a wake. They came mm. back to the house. Mm. Now, I was only young, but... I can remember there were lots of people there and they were drinking and they were smoking and they were having a laugh and I got distressed because my dad had died. And really? there were people in our house and I can understand it now, but yeah. as a young fellow, and I just had to leave. And I can remember I, I went down that Merry Creek and just walked along there. I just wanted to be away from everyone. And I also thought I need to get a job because I was in Form 5 at Coburg High at that time. Mm. And, you know, we, we weren't rich. Um, there was my mum and I had a sister who was two years older. And I thought, I've got, I've, I've got to go out and earn some money. And, and I'll never forget the Carlton Footy Club because um, they insisted that I stay at school. And I stayed at school for the next two years. And then I went to Teachers College for mm. three years. In that five-year period... The secretary of the Carlton Football Club each year, around about January, would come to our house and have a cup of tea with my mother and leave a brown paper bag. Amazing. And in that brown paper bag was yeah. money. And and they used to say to my mum, this is to make sure that you know he stays at school, he goes to college and will support you. And it's something that I never, ever forgot. Um, and could I just chime in there and ask you, your father, a mechanic? Yes, motor mechanic, yeah. So, so you're, you're really steeped in the old working class. Uh, what about your mum? Well, uh, stay at home, home duties. I, yeah. I, looked, I checked the electoral rolls, of yeah. course. She wasn't out working. Did she have a, any other professional life? No, no. Look, as uh, after my dad passed away, she did a few part-time jobs, oh. you know, in shops and so on, working in shops mm. and sports stores mm. and so on. Uh, but no, mum was pretty much, you know, stay at home. But um, Could I just say there too, your mum had you when she was 35. Yep. And she had your sister a couple of years earlier. So she didn't marry as a youngster, like lots of people married young, and I think you probably married young too. But um, any reason why your mum... I think your mum married in 1947... Well, when she was I was 30. born in 1950, so, so that'd be right. Look, Phil, like... And, th and this is interesting, Mum's passed away a long time yeah. ago. But it wasn't until oh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, she told my sister and I that she had been married <gasps> earlier as a teenager. And really? it, it was an unsuccessful marriage, um, a hard marriage. She, I, I, I guess today you'd say it was you know, domestic, domestic abuse. Domestic violence. And my father, she said my father, in those days it was hard to get a divorce and took time and from what mum told us, my father waited and waited and waited until the divorce came through and then they got married. So, Have you ever told this story before? No, I haven't, no. I mean, it's fascinating to me because as, as an historian, I, I, I search through the records and I'm looking at 
uh, piecing together your early life and I see your mother and I think, Robert Wall's born when his mum's 35, a, a sister when your mum's around about 32 and you're telling me your mother was married as a teenager. Yes, and, and again, from what I found out, the person who she married as a teenager was a farmer and she lived on the farm with his mother and sisters right. and was treated really poorly. Incredible. Are you saying she only told you that when? Well, I'm, I'm just, look, I'm 70 now, Phil. Mum, mum passed away 15 years ago. I reckon I would have been maybe in my 40s when I found out. You know, for, for most of my life with my mum, I didn't know. And so she had no children in this first marriage, though? No, no. That, 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 is, that is astounding. So it leads me into then, again, to your early life, Coburg. You're a Coburg High boy, so you're living in Brunswick, but you go to Coburg High. Coburg High is regarded as a school with a bit of status in the day. When I was growing up, I was at St Joe's, the out of Pasco Vale. Um, Newlands High was a rough school alongside the Housing Commission, people thought, under Pentridge. Coburg High, you were a prefect, weren't you? Yes, I, I, I was a prefect and um, in my final year, yeah, matriculation as it was, then I was head prefect. Yes. And um, well, in 1968, which was my matriculation year, um, I was head prefect, which was a nice honour to have. And Carlton won the premiership. Well, mm. I'd played in the Carlton premiership Indeed. team. But the big hero at Coburg High was Raylene Boyle. Of course. Who in 1968 mm. was in the Olympics, the Mexico Olympics. Well, Raylene was only 16 and she was a couple of years behind me at school. And uh, you can imagine, you know, what we all thought about that. Like, mm. here we are, one of, one of our schoolmates uh, going off to the Olympics. She was bigger than Texas, Raylene. The heroine of the northern suburbs, wasn't she? And they say she used to train on the Coburg ground. Well, she did. And I, I was just going to mention that. She, she trained on the Coburg footy ground. And there were a couple of summers when we, the footballers, would do some sprint training yeah. there. And we, we'd actually run with her and yeah. it was embarrassing because... She was so good. She was so good, yeah. <laughs> but her, she, Raylene also had an older brother, Ron Boyle, yes. who was an Olympic cyclist. Mm. So, yeah, it was... Yeah, and, and I've, I've, I've read and seen stories of Raylene. She did it pretty hard as a kid too. Yes, I know, and she's talked about that. And um, that area, Coburg... Produced some other interesting characters too. Did you know the Mercer family? Uh, yeah, I do, but not well. Robert Mercer rings a bell. Yeah, Robert yeah. Dave Mercer was a David Mercer was an anti-conscription bloke from Coburg of, in the seventies, early late sixties. And George Mercer knew you from Coburg High. And I I spoke to George Mercer many years ago for a book I wrote called Cleary Independent, and he said, "Yeah, Robert Walls, head prefect. Yeah, I didn't like people in authority, and he was one of them. Very precious sort of upstanding character. Was that you?" Oh, well, it sounds like I was. <laughs> so, just apropos that, the, the club you and I both started at, Coburg Amateurs, did you play senior football there in 1966 before Carlton? No, I, I had two years at Coburg Amateurs and both of those were in the under-15 team. Ah. I, East Coburg was the team that I went to as a 13-year-old. Right. And I, I can remember... I was nervous and the kids were kicking end to end. <laughs> and uh, 
anyway, the ball hit the ground and some kid put his hand on the ball and I've kicked, I've kicked it kicked his hand and all the other kids looked at me in horror and said, oh, yeah, you're a dirty player. Uh -huh. So I, I walked out and I thought, well, I'm not welcome here at East Coburg. So I went down the road to the Merry Creek to yeah, Sheen Coburg, Reserve and, Coburg and, Amateurs. and had two years there in the under-15s. And you, did you meet Alan Salter there or probably not? He coached I remember, the I remember the name. But uh, what did Carlton spot in you? Because we're talking about 1966, they spot you and they invite you down. I, I think that they, they had scouts looking at the, at the kids playing under-15 football and from memory, I, I reckon there were a hundred of us invited yeah. down. And <laughs> you know, one of them was Bruce Dool, um, Dougie Baird. And uh, so we went down as kids and um, as each week went by, that, that list of a hundred would, would shrink by ten. Yeah. And uh, in the end, you know, you, you're part of the 35 that made up the under-19 team. Well, it's funny. I trained with Carlton under-19s in 1968, just after you. I was at St Joe's, North Melbourne, and I remember getting the tram to, to Princess Park for training in the under-19s and feeling exceedingly lonely, and it didn't work out, so I went off again from, from Carlton and back to local football. But So just go back to Coburg High. You were a prefect... You finished school, matric, and you went off te to Teachers College just over the way from Coburg High School. And there weren't many blokes in that era who were be being educated uh, into tertiary education, were there? Well, I At think you're right. football? Yeah, when I went to... Why did I go to Teachers College? I had, I had an uncle who was a teacher and uh, when my dad had passed away, he was yeah. a big influence in my yeah. life. And, and I thought, you know, it would work well um, combining football and teaching because, you know, there, there were... It wasn't as if, you know, you had nine till six and you had to work weekends or whatever. So I thought teaching would fit in well with footy. Um, so I went to Teachers College and again from memory, I reckon about one in four of the students was a guy, like most of them were yeah, girls. Yeah. And that was t to be a primary school teacher. And um, I had three years at Coburg Teachers College, which I really enjoyed, and did my teacher training at the local schools in the area. And the big, the big thing, Phil, at the end of your three years as a doing a, your teacher training was where would you be appointed like yeah. what what's what school would you be sent to you could put down your preferences but they like to send the 2021 year old males to country areas and uh, I thought gee I hope I don't end up you know up at Oyen or Mildura yeah. but uh, I think a few strings were pulled and as it turned out <laughs> I was teaching at Moreland and Coburg for the next <laughs> 10 years. Exactly so lucky you. So tell us Robert what kind of bloke were you when I fossicked around in the old days talking to people about Robert Walls, you know, the, the, the prefect was always mentioned that you were tall, of course, you know, you're six foot four, so you're a commanding presence, you're interested in education and you're marching towards tertiary education and being a teacher. What kind of bloke were you? I think I was really conscientious of doing the right thing. One, by my family and my mother, uh, and two by the football club. Was this partly because of losing your dad? 
I think so. I think you had a responsibility. That, you know, if I had my time over again, I would have been far more relaxed, and mm. I would have spent more time socialising. Uh-huh. And you know, I, I'd, I'd have a drink, but I could count on my hand the number of times that I drank to excess. Um, so I don't think I socialised anywhere near as much as I should have. Um, so you weren't a knockabout bloke, were you? No, nah, not, a, not a knockabout bloke. Got, got married at the age of 22, which was far too young. That mm. marriage lasted less than a year. Mm. And um, I guess the good thing about that was not long after that I, I met Erin and you know, we were together for 30-odd years. Yeah, we're going to talk about Erin uh, a little bit later too. Um, Ron Barassi, of course, loved the fact that you were hardworking and conscientious, didn't he? He wrote a column once, which I, I look back and say, well, that was fantastic, but it was embarrassing at the time. And he's, he's, I think he said I was a, foot, a coach's dream, <laughs> something did, like he that. Did, he that, did. that was probably when I was you know, a teenager, 19, 20, 21. We ended up falling out to a certain extent as player and coach but yeah look I, I just wanted to do the right thing and I was I was part of a team that had a lot of success like my, mm. my first mm. six years in, mm. in AFL football VFL football we played in five grand finals so mm. you you were part of a, a very successful group. So let's go to this football career first kick goal Correct? Yes, yeah, and uh, I, I can remember that because I was full forward. The ball went out of bounds in the forward pocket and as the ruckman got set to contest the throw-in, I looked at our ruckman, who was the great John Nichols. he stared at me and then he stared at a bit of vacant space and I thought, I think he wants me to run to that spot. So as the ball got thrown in, <laughs> I ran to that spot and he hit the ball straight to me and I was able to snap a goal. So that was a good lesson that you can communicate with just eyes and nods and winks and so on. But the other thing I remember from that first game, Phil, I was full forward. It was also the first game for a Hawthorne player who was playing at full forward. Peter Hudson mm. and the big difference Peter Hudson <laughs> arrived by plane and helicopter <laughs> I got the tram down Sydney Road so I knew where I stood early days the number 19 tram to Coburg hey the Sydney Road tram didn't we all grow up with the Sydney Road tram so all right what what was it like for you 1968 you're in matric aren't you yes at Coburg High School you you're, you're marching towards a premiership how were you being treated at school, both before and after that premiership? Well, I, look, I think the younger kids, I was in, I was in uh, Form 6, the, the younger kids, you know, in Forms 1, 2 and 3, like, they, they, were, they were excited. That, they follow you around? Yeah, because, you know... <laughs> Most of the kids the who went to Piper. most of the kids who went to Coburg High barracked for Essendon or yeah, Carlton, yeah. and uh, and so the kids would follow me around. They'd want to talk about you know the games and so on, which was great. It's interesting. I I had one teacher there who, for whatever reason, didn't like me, and uh, I didn't like her. And uh, I hope it wasn't Anne Scrow. No, no. <laughs> and Do you know Anne Scrow? Yeah, I, Do you remember? I remember. Okay, yeah, well, we'll yeah. come back to Anne in a minute. Go but, on. But this particular teacher, um, she was my she was my British history teacher, and she just didn't like me, and and I didn't like her. So I made up my mind early in the year that 
I had to attend the classes, but I was not going to worry about passing the exam because I could pass the other subjects and mm. still get by. But I had to sit the exam. And I can remember sitting the exam. I was there for three hours and I've got the paper and, of course, I know nothing about it. And I just scribbled and doodled on the paper. And what I scribbled was the initials of this teacher. And the, I won't tell you what the initials were, but I wrote down, let's say, AB is a bitch. And then when the three hours was up, I thought, well, I better scribble over this so it can't be seen. But I didn't do a good job. And... She's, she's got the paper and she's realised what I've done and she wanted to expel me from the school. I'm not exactly sure how far it went but the uh, sportsmaster at the school, a fellow called Ken Orbiston, who's passed mm -hmm. now, but he did play league football for Hawthorne mm -hmm. back in the day. He went into bat for me and I was able to, um, you know, not get expelled. But, yeah, I, it was stupid what I did. But uh, well, That would have been a, a sliding door moment had <laughs> you been expelled. Um, just going to Anne Scrow, another kind of famous teaching identity in Coburg. Did, did you have any memories of Anne? No, no I don't. Uh, it was SGRO, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. her husband, Giovanni, was a member of, went on to be a member of parliament, okay. an Italian fellow, working yeah. class. Uh, but Anne, Anne was from an old lefty family and she was a brilliant teacher and really highly regarded. But so let's go to the grand final. You get the first taste of a grand final in 1968. In July you turned 18, is that correct? Yeah, yes. there, there were two 18-year-olds in the Carlton team. Uh, myself and Brent Croswell. What do you remember of that day? 100,000 people, the boy from Coburg, Brunswick, lost his father the year before. Here you are on the grandest sporting stage in Australia. I can remember the Sunday before the grand final. We knew we were in it and uh, Ron Barassi was our coach and his mentor was the great Norm Smith mm. and he invited Norm to come and speak to the team and I'd never met Norm Smith, but knew of him, of course, because he was the great coach. And he spoke to the group, and, and I, can, I can still remember his words, which were, when you run out on the ground, throw your chest out, put your head up, run close to the boundary line, mm. and just take in every grandstand, absorb the crowd. And he said, once you've done that, just put your head down and say, right, it's a game of football, I'll just do what I'm supposed to do. I think that not only did I do it that day, but I did it every game I played since. Mm. And it was just get out there, take in the surrounds, and then get down to business. But when, when we won, and we only won by three points, I can remember coming back to the Carlton Social Club, which had just been built. Yes. And um, it was just absolutely rocking because Carlton hadn't won a premiership for 21 years. And I can remember going into the social club and the supporters were just going off their head. Yeah. And it was, it was yeah. just fantastic to think that you were part of all of that. Well, it's interesting going back, 1945 Carlton beat South Melbourne in the bloodbath game at Princess Park. And the great Lance Collins who played for Coburg in 40-41 and before that and was captain coach in the 41 grand final against Port Melbourne, which they lost at the MCG, went on to play in Carlton's 45 premiership. He truly was a superstar. He kicked eight goals in the second semi 
and four in the preliminary final to take Carlton to a grand final. Lance Collins, one to look up, Robert, but I see Carlton, Kekovic, isn't that interesting? Brian Kekovic, Crane, Croswell, Quirk, the goal kickers. And we see Blethen kick four for Aston Blethen who wore glasses. Yeah, and what, another what? boy from up around the Coburg area. Yes. Yeah. And, and you look, of course, John Nichols, Silvani, Gallagher, Jones. What a side. What a moment. Uh, Alan Noonan, I played with him at Coburg in 1978. He's playing in the Essendon side. Tell us about the game, well, the final moments. Well, as a kid, I was an Essendon supporter. Yes, so I, I know. Your out. mum, didn't yeah. she barrack for Essendon? My mum was an Essendon supporter, so she used to... My father was a Carlton supporter, but he'd spend his Saturdays listening to the races at home, and mum would take me over to Windy Hill, and, and I, I just loved the Essendon <laughs> players. So I went to the seven, 62 and 65 Essendon Grand Finals in my Essendon gear as a 12 and 15-year-old. Yeah. Three years later, I've gone... In 1968, as a Carlton player, playing against some of my heroes like you know Ken Fraser and yeah. Alec Eppis and John Burton, yeah. Jack, I can reel them all off. Yeah. Um, it, it was a very windy day, and Carlton kicked less goals than Essendon, which has never happened before. Seven fourteen to eight five. So she's a very low scoring game because we talk these days about low scoring, and everyone gets yeah. upset about it. But there you have a genuinely low scoring match. It was really windy. That's what I remember. I played in the back pocket. And next to me was Wes Lofts and Ian Collins was in the other back pocket. Yeah. And I spent all that season playing in the back pocket. Uh, in those days, I'd be on the resting ruckman. Mm. So I played on all the big fellas and, you know, your Carl Dittriches and these sort of guys. Did you play on Fordham in the grand final as well? I played on Teddy Fordham in the grand and final. And McKenzie, did he go forward? Yeah, occasionally. And, mm. and again, as a, as a 17, 18-year-old, I was a little bit intimidated by the size of these blokes. But... Playing again, playing alongside Lofts and Collins. Let me say they educated me mm. on what what forearms and elbows and knees do. So it was a pretty tough school. When you look at that whole little epoch, do you feel blessed? Oh, absolutely. Uh, look, I, I'm so fortunate that I had Ron Barassi as my coach for the first six years. Did you love him? I loved him. Um, I adored him, and in the end, I didn't want to play for him. And that, and you fell out. Well, I, had, I remember I had my twenty-first birthday at my house in Brunswick. Mum had, you know, said mm. we'll have a bit of a party on the in Sunday. the brick veneer. In the brick veneer, and near I was the I was in a brick veneer just north of you too, yeah. twenty-six Shore Grove. And Mum said to me, "Well, let's know who you want to invite." So I invited nearly all my teammates, and um, I didn't invite Ron Barassi. And the reason why it was pretty churlish and petty, but. At that stage, I was 21. I probably thought I, I, I was better than I thought. thought. This is 1971, yeah. after the 70 premiership. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, all right, tell us why you didn't like him. It got to a stage with Ron where he would only criticise you. Um, mm. But his belief was that you are there to play good football. So if mm. you play good football, that's what you're expected to do. Mm. So he was, he was critical... Um, I played my first game for Victoria that year and when I came back the next week, he just tore strips off me uh, at half-time. You know, mm. who do you think you are? You think you're a big-time and you know, you, mm. you're too good to play for Carlton because you think you're a Victorian mm. player. 
that sort of thing and it got on top of me a little bit and I can remember I'd wake up on a Saturday morning and think, oh, I don't want to go and play for him, Gee, which was really d- yeah. bad on my side. But they're, they're interesting stories because we'll come to you as a coach later yeah. because I would have thought some people would argue that you were a too tough on them and were a tough coach, but you can tell me more about that when we get to that point. But just take me to 1970 then. You're going all right with Barassi. You haven't fallen out yet. It's the 1970 Grand Final, and of course it's legendary. Four goals, five, Carlton to Collingwood, 10-13. You're gone. I'm in the southern stand with my girlfriend, who was a Collingwood supporter. I We parted. We were yeah. not getting on. I went and found my parents. Can you believe that? That's a true story. Tell me, Robert. What did Barassi say at halftime that was so significant? And is it true that he said something significant about handballing? He did because uh, he he came in. The first thing he did was upend a trestle with all the drinks. <laughs> As you do. As you do. So all the drinks have hit the floor. And uh, he's then got a, a, a stats sheet in his hand and he's just screaming out 15 handballs, 15 effing handballs. And basically that meant that we were not playing on. We were not sharing yeah, the ball. Yeah. We were not playing with any boldness. And uh, and the message was, take the game on. He, and that's what I loved about him as a coach, is that um, he dared you to um, play bold attacking football, not be conservative. A lot of coaches in that situation, when we were 40-odd points behind at halftime, a lot of coaches would have said, well... Let's load our back line. We can't afford mm. to have the opposition kick another you know, mm. 10 goals against us. So we'll lose, but we're, we won't go down by 20 goals. But he said, take the game on. And uh, look, he, he, he took one player off, Bert Thornley, and in those mm. days you couldn't come back on. So mm. that's a risk. Yeah. He put Teddy Hopkins on and he instructed the back line whenever they got the footy, to handball and run with it. So, I so was it's playing all true. This is all true about Barassi, active genius in terms of the strategy at halftime. Yeah, yeah. And, and I can remember in that third quarter, I think we kicked seven goals, but we got seven goals in the space. You got about eight goals in the third quarter, four, five to 12, five, and you didn't kick a point. Yeah, yeah. I, I've actually looked at that quarter in the last 12 months and... If you look at it, you'll see players like Serge Silvani, John Gould, Vinnie Waite, Gary Crane on the wing, mm. just playing on without any mm. regard. Now, as a mm. forward, mm. I, I love that because it meant the ball was coming in quick. And uh, as a result, you know, I was able to get into the game. Brent Croswell did. And uh, Sid Jackson as well. And Jezza, of course. Yes. And we came in at three-quarter time. I think we were 10 points down. 12-5 to 13-16. So one goal, 11. Okay. So we, we've, we've come in still behind. And again, I think Barassi, just the psychology of him, mm. he spoke to the group and said, fantastic, whatever happens, I'm proud of you, the way you fought back. And we said, hey, hang on, yeah. <laughs> don't be proud of us, we're, we're not finished, we're, like, we're, we're going to win this, and we did. And you did. Now tell me, one of the great characters of the game and of football was Brent Croswell. Now Brent kind of emerged uh, in the narrative as a bit of an intellectual. He was at university, he was studying political, political science, I think, and, and humanities at Monash University. What kind of person was he? 
Did you like him? I did like him. He was he was different. Um, football wasn't the be all and end all to him, and he said himself that. Um, Send him out to the Western Oval against Footscray on a cold winter's day <laughs> with a crowd of 12,000 and uh, I really don't want to be there and I'll play accordingly. But put me in front of 100,000 at the MCG and I'll just show you how good I am. And that was Brent. Typical of him back in the day, we, 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 let's say we do six 400s for mm. summer training. The first two 400s, he'd win by 30 metres. The last two... He'd be last by 30 metres. His attitude was, well, I've done enough. I can show you I can do it. Had a perfect football build, could play anywhere. Mm. Mm. Um, He mainly played in the centre, but he could have played as a key forward, key defender. Didn't know the names of most of his teammates. Hence Tiger. Hence Tiger. That was so his, everyone was Tiger? He called everyone Tiger because he didn't know their name. I'll tell you one of the most embarrassing things that I've witnessed on a football field. We're playing Hawthorne out at Glen Ferry. Now, Ron Barassi had worn the famous number 31 and Barassi's retired as a player and the number 31 has been given to a young bloke called Peter Hall. You'd mm. probably, he was a politician from down mm. Gippsland Way. Yes, I know of him. But he was an up and coming player, like had a big future. Mm. So Carlton's given him number 31. And uh, we're playing out at uh, Glen Ferry Oval against the Hawks. And I, Brent is yelling out, number 31, kick it to me, number 31. It's like you're in at primary school. And I just thought, oh no, like how would it make Peter feel that he, he's being called by his number? And the other thing I remember about Brent, every well, most of us, we were particular about packing our kit bag, you know, your boots and your socks and your jocks and your towel and your mouth guard, etc. Brent would turn up to a game on his motorbike, wearing his leathers, and no footy bag. And he'd come into the rooms and the property stewards would have to outfit him with socks and jocks and shorts and towel and and when the game was over he'd just strip off they'd pick up his gear he'd go and have a shower and get on the bike and go i'll give you another little aside a, a coburg story the the tram the ninth coburg tram it's 19 when you're going out to coburg i suppose it's 19 when you're going the other way i was on the coburg tram in 1968 going to st joseph's north melbourne school the christian brothers who were bad bastards and <laughs> who gets on the tram brent croswell and where is he going? To University High. Yes. And I actually had had the confidence to say, G'day, are you Brent Croswell? And we had a bit of a yarn on the tram in 1968, the year he played in that 68 premiership. Anyway, now, did you find him clever and intellectual? Um, or was he just different? Just different, I think. Just different. The boys used to play a few tricks on him. And I can remember one... You won't believe this, but back in the day, um, we'd have a team meeting after training and before the coach came in, a few of the players would light up a fag and, uh, oh, yes. and Brent was always botting a fag off Percy Jones and uh, Percy got sick of this anyway. He'd set Brent up and everybody knew except Brent and the coach. Everyone knew that an exploding cigarette was being passed to him. So John Nichols was the coach and uh, Brent's done his usual thing. Hey, Purse, give us a fag. So Purse has opened the smokes. Yeah, take that, lit it up. 
and we're just waiting on about the fourth drag. The, the cigarettes exploded. Well, the coach exploded too. <laughs> Weren't they amazing times, Robert? The cigarette, which which we've we've expunged from the landscape everywhere. But in football, trainers would have a cigarette out at the huddle. Some bloke would lean over to the trainer and body cigarette. Uh, I reckon I saw uh, uh, Robert Smith, who played for North Melbourne and came to us and kicked 100 goals. I remember him botting the cigarette off the trainer and it was a roll your own. Yeah. And you saw the, the, the ash at the end of the cigarette. These were, it was amazing, wasn't it? The last player that I coached who had a cigarette was Roger Merritt. Yes. And this, this is going back to the yeah. 90s when I was coaching yeah. the Brisbane Bears. Yeah. After a game, Roger would go into the property steward's room, so he'd get away from yeah. everyone else, yeah. and he'd just sit back in his footy gear and light up. <laughs> and there's that famous photograph of Robbie McGee after the grand final with the cup and yeah. the cigarette, isn't there? In the middle of the MCG. In the middle of the MCG. Yeah. What, what an image that is. All right, let's go to 1972. This is your piece de resistance in your whole career, apart from coaching the Premiership in 87. Who could have believed you had a draw during the final series, you were gone, uh, Richmond are playing with you, I think. Kevin Sheedy rubbed John Nichols's head, I think, on the MCG in a previous final, and it looks like it's over. And look at your score, 28 goals, 9 to 22-18. Jezelenko, 7. Nichols, Walls, 6. Keo 3. Jackson, 2. Chandler Dixon, Gallagher Hall. Robert Walls was on fire in that game. What had you done well the night before? Had you slept well? Were you primed? Did, did Big Nick say something that fired you? What happened? Well, we were confident going into the game because two weeks before, Richmond mm. had beaten us quite significantly. So they jumped into the grand final and we had to play St Kilda in the preliminary. But the day after Richmond had beaten us, we met at the Carlton ground and our coach, captain coach, John Nichols, we were all feeling really flat, really low. We'd just been beaten. He called us in and he said, boys, we're going to win the flag. And we all looked at each other and said, well, hang on, we've got to play St Kilda next week and he's talking about us winning the flag. He sowed the seed. He said, we can beat them if we do this, if we play attacking football. Percy will go into the ruck, do the first ruck. John Nichols will stay in the forward line and uh, he made a few positional changes mm -hmm. and anyway, we played St Kilda. I think we won the preliminary by a couple of goals mm -hmm. but I can remember walking off the ground and we all looked at each other and we thought, hey, we're back here next week, we're going to win this. So we went into the game as underdogs with the public but we felt that we were a real chance to win. I guess we played, again, bold attacking football. Um, Have you ever personally played a better game? No, no, did, no. Did, and, we, and, we, and we play, we remember all these moments, and I, I played inside 50 as a forward with Coburg in the VFA, you know, and I, I kicked 318 goals and I kicked seven in a game here and there. But, uh, but you know those days when it goes right and the ball just follows you when you're a forward, somehow it just mm. emerges. You get it, you kick it, it's a goal, and you think, God, I'm blessed today. Did you yeah. feel blessed? Yeah, I did, because um, I can remember in the second quarter, um, we kicked 18 goals in the first half, but I can remember in the second quarter, ball got kicked out wide on the flank, a, couple yeah. of, a Carlton player and a Richmond player overran it. I was on Rex Hunt, 
and I led Rex to the ball and I've got the ball right on the boundary line and I'm about 40 metres out. Am running. I thinking Southern Stand? Yeah. Heading towards the city Correct. goals? Yes, I still remember that. I've seen it on t- in, a, in a video. Go on. And I'm running flat out near the boundary line and I've just thought I'm, I'm going to have a shot here and I've had a shot and the ball's gone out to the right <laughs> and then it swung back into mm. the left through for a goal. Mm. And I was as surprised as anyone that, hey, this ball has just gone out and then it's come in. They went back and bounced it. It got kicked to centre-half forward. And I can remember I buffeted a couple of players. One of them was Kevin Sheedy. I ended up swinging onto my left foot and I just threw it on the boot. It, was, it went about 50 metres high and it just floated here and mm. there. But it, it, it went over the goal line by mm. a metre. And I'm thinking, I can't do a thing wrong. Like It, mm. it was just one of those days where mm. it fell into place. And because our team played well... And they got it in quick. It, it meant that Jezza and Big John and myself had every chance to play well. Yeah, an astounding uh, a, a chapter in, in football's evolution, I suppose, to, to, to pull out one of those attacking games out of nowhere. Like, people couldn't believe it at the time, could they? Well, that was 50 years ago. and Yeah, 28 I, goals. I don't think it'll ever be beaten. Not no. the way footy's played today. So you go to 1973 and it's... Controversial to the extent that uh, Jeff Southby has to leave the ground. And there's no doubt he gets whacked by Neil Baum. And, of course, John Nichols got cleaned up by Fowler, but such is life. It was just a collision going for the ball. But did, did you have any re- uh, reflections about that episode? I mean, we know Baum is a good bloke and all the rest of it, but that was the old game. But any reflections on what happened to Southby? Um, what happened to Jeff was pretty brutal. Um, it was nasty, it was vicious, it was brutal. There, have I, you said this before, Robert? Uh, oh, I, I think I have, yeah. yeah. And, and look, I like Neil Barton. Yeah. And, and back in the day, it was what was done. I think mm. all of us would say we've done things mm. back then that mm. we regret, but it was sort of expected of you. Um, having said that, look, there, I've still got a couple of teammates who are still filthy on it. Really? Uh, 50 years down the track. Yeah. I'm, I'm not. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, it, it was... Back in the day, it was part and parcel of the way it was played. Look, they, they, they were keen for revenge because we'd beaten them in 72. We had two of our key midfielders, Trevor Keogh and Barry mm. Armstrong, missed that grand mm. final and they were, they were key players. Mm. When Big Nick went down in the first quarter, he spoke to the team at quarter time and I could see that... He didn't know where he was. Mm. He had this glazed look in his eye. He, he, he was concussed. And I reckon we all thought, God, you know, he, he's, he's our leader, he's our coach, and he's been fouled. We're in trouble here. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was... Um, it, we just didn't have enough things going going right for us. And, they look, they were a very good side. Yeah, they originally. were, though, and they went on 174. And, and a lot of people mightn't understand this, and some women might ask the question... What was it about the presence of a man like Nichols, for example? Uh, what, what is it about blokes' culture that this warrior figure... Well, he wasn't a warrior. He was just a, a monolith in a way, but he was a remarkable player. How would you describe his presence? Oh, strongest presence on a football field of anybody that I've ever seen. Um, 
we were scared of him, let alone yeah. the opposition. Mm-hmm. I can remember one game we played at North Melbourne. The ball got kicked in at full-back by Jeff South, but he's kicked it about 80 metres. I've flown for the ball as a centre-half forward. I've kneed John Nichols in the back of the head. He's gone down. I've run away because I didn't want him to know that I did yeah, him. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm on his <laughs> team, but I'm scared of him. So I can imagine what the uh, opposition were. Towards the end of his career, he played mainly in the forward pocket. Mm. So he was 40, 50 metres behind me as the centre-half forward. Mm. I had a lot of confidence running back with the flight of the ball, mm. knowing that John was there to protect mm. me. What was it about his character, Robert? I mean, he's not, a, he's not an effusive kind of person, really, is he? Would you say a man of fewer words than more words? Well, Although sometimes he can be a little effusive. He did coach me in 1981 at Coburg, yeah. so I had a taste of him. I, well, look, I had Barassi as my coach for the first six or seven years, then John for the next four. Mm. The thing about John that, that I remember as a coach, he got senior player involvement. Now, mm. Barass was yeah. the coach and his word was God. When John took over as coach, he would get Jezza, me, Southby, Dool, Mackay and ask us our opinion. He empowered us. So he's a bit democratic before his yeah, time? Yeah, absolutely. He, he, he empowered us to have input into the team. Mm. I was his vice captain and uh, he would often ring me and say, what are your thoughts on this? Who do you think we should play? Uh, who should play on mm. so-and-so? Mm. And it made me want to be a student of the game. I, I didn't want to let him down. So I, I think he was fantastic in that regard. That brings me to the end of my one-on-one with the great Robert Walls. What a storyteller he is. The good news, however, is that he's just as good in part two.